have your Bible, our passage today is Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13. We're beginning an eight-week series, eight-week journey through the parables of Jesus uh, for, th- for the next eight weeks. It's going to look like June and July for us, basically our summer series. But before we unpack our first parable of, of the season, I, I just want to take a few minutes to establish a couple of things so that we know what we're getting into when we talk about the parable. So that leads us to kind of our, our opening question here, which is, well, what, what is a parable? Well, let me start by saying what parables are not, and maybe that'll just sort of lead into some of the things that you thought growing up, maybe being in Sunday school and thinking that parables were these nice stories that uh, Jesus told that maybe your teacher used as, as sort of the great moral example, you know, in your life as to what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And that is not what parables are. Parables are not like Aesop's fables, right? They're not fortune cookies. Uh, they're not Sunday school tales, again, that end with, and the moral of the story is. They're, they're not these moral folk tales spoken by this wise old ancient guru that we call Jesus, right? That's, what not, that's not what parables are. What parables really are, and if we get into like a hard definition of what they really are, they're actually just this, short stories that teach truth. And in fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, uh, it was prophesied that when Jesus came onto the scene, that this was how he was going to communicate. This was one of the ways that he was going to speak to the people. He was going to do it in parables. In Psalm 78, verse 2, it says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then we get all the way to the book of Matthew, and it says about Jesus, it says he spoke to them in parables as a fulfillment of that prophecy uh, of him being the way he was going to communicate the gospel uh, to his people. Um, but 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us something interesting about the parables in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, Okay. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So one of the things that happen is that when Jesus starts speaking to people in parables, not everybody understands what the heck he's saying, including his uh, disciples. So what we know about the parables and the way that Jesus communicated them is that for the unbeliever... For those who, who weren't buying who Jesus was, when Jesus comes onto the scene and says, believe my words, I've been sent by the Father, I am the Son of God. For people who didn't buy that, who just thought he was just this crazy guy, or who just thought he was a great teacher, for those people, parables sounded like gibberish to them. And parables will sound like gibberish to us until God opens the hearts of people to understand and to spiritually discern who Jesus is and what he came to do. So Jesus used parables as a way of teaching people about this phrase that we see all through the New Testament, this thing called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he begins a lot of his parables by by saying just that. He says, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he tells a parable and he begins by teaching some truth then about the kingdom of God. Well, okay, great. That leads us to the next question then. What is the kingdom of God? Because here's the thing. When we, in, our, you know, in, in, our, in 2018 in Ashland, Ohio, when we think of the word kingdom, you know, we're, we're not thinking of it the way the people back then would have been thinking of the word. We go all medieval, right? When we think of, of, of a kingdom, you know, we think of castles and moats, right? We think of kings, you know, who say things like, come hither, fair queen, you know? 
That was the worst medieval accent of all time. I don't know why I just did that. Here's how John Piper, a better man than I am, this is how he defines the kingdom of God. This is what he says about it. He says, the kingdom of God is God's reign. That's R-E-I-G-N. His sovereign action in the world to redeem and deliver a people and then at a future time finish it and renew his people and the universe completely. So that's what Jesus is really aiming at when he starts talking about or likening things or giving us illustrations to what the kingdom of God is like and the people that make up the kingdom of God, which are those who now follow Christ. So the kingdom of God is God's reign over all things. But the question then is, what does he accomplish as reigning king, right? What, what does he do? Is he just sitting up there on a throne, just watching everything take place and wherever something falls, that's where it falls. Whatever happens, that's just kind of how things happen. Or is he actually accomplishing a particular work uh, by virtue of him reigning over all things? Now, I don't know if you guys have ever been on a thing called a, uh, I don't know, some places have these things called glass bottom boats. And they're these crazy, scary boats that are that, that were the bottom of them. I mean, it's just how I just described it, right? The bottom is like, it's glass. So you're like standing on this thing. You're like, ah, you know, and you're seeing like all the plant life and all the sharks and all the creatures below you. And you're, you're just floating along and you kind of feel like you're in the water, but you're not wet. But somehow you're more terrified than if you were in the water and, and you were wet. The point is, is that you have nothing to do with what's going on in the ocean. You're just standing on this boat and you're just looking out and you're seeing all of these events with the fishes and the plant life take place. That's not God's action in the world. God is moving in the world. He's not just up looking down on everything that is, is, uh, everything that is happening. God sent his son Jesus into the world as an action step to redeem and deliver a people. So Jesus is the sovereign action step of God as a way to spread his reign throughout the world. And in fact, when we go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, this is what it says. This is what John says about what Jesus came down to the earth to do. He says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what this does is it causes us to have to go all the way back then to Genesis chapter 3, the first book in the Bible, where we read about the devil when he deceived Adam and Eve by telling them that there was something more to be desired and valued than God. It was at that moment that God, in a sense, was dethroned in Adam and Eve's heart as supreme ruler and Lord. What happened after that was that the human race was corrupted, meaning everybody born to Adam and Eve, that's us, right, would inherit a value system that placed their own desires ahead of God, who is and happens to be the most joyful fulfillment of all desire. And so this is just the reality of what all of us face in our hearts. The second we're conceived is that we have dethroned God from his rightful place of ruler over our hearts. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through that sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what, that's what Paul says. So there's, there's this reality. There is this corrupted reality that exists in us where we don't desire God 
over all of our other desires. We don't want God for his goodness above and beyond all the other goodnesses that may be even in existence in our life. So what God did was send Jesus to destroy this dethroned desire that the devil succeeded in selling to Adam. And he did it so that men and women might again desire and treasure God above and beyond all things. They might desire, value, and treasure God above all other desires, above all other values, above all other treasures. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil so that God would be restored back to the throne over people's lives. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, that's what we're talking about. This is what I like, a a definition, another definition I like from a guy named Daniel Montgomery. He describes the kingdom of God as this, the good life with Jesus. The good life with Jesus. God is reigning over us. Jesus exists in our hearts via the Holy Spirit. And now we are living a life where he has now uh, inaugurated his rule and we are reaping the benefits and the blessings from that. And here's the problem with that before we dive into our parable this morning. The problem is that when a person asks Jesus to rule and reign over their life, I said this in the beginning, they're also simultaneously declaring war against all the other rulers of their life because you have other rulers in your life, right? There are things that rule your affections. There are things that rule your hearts or things that you're drawn to that you want and desire more than God. So as soon as you say, Jesus, rule over my life, you're declaring war against those other rulers. And those other rulers, man, they are always in fighting shape, right? They are always ready to fight. They're always ready to reclaim the title of your heart's greatest treasure, So again, some of the questions that we want to answer right now as we dive in is, why is Jesus then the better ruler over us? Why is he better? And then secondly, why is he the better treasure that we should give up all other treasures for? Because that's extreme. That's extreme. The call to follow Christ is extreme. God's not just asking for a couple hours a week. He's not asking for 9 to 10, 15 on a good short week when you guys are all pumped up about it, right? He's not asking just for that. He's asking for your life. He's asking for everything. And this is what we see here as we read these two parables. Matthew 13, chapter 44. If you want to look down, I'm going to read. This is Jesus talking, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Let's just stop right there because these are two parables that are virtually the same thing with some varying contrast. So uh, what we see here is that a man finds buried treasure in a field and then with joy he sells everything he owns so that he can buy the field and then take possession of the treasure. So here's a modern illustration for those of you guys that have ever bought a house or worked with a real estate agent. And what happens is you go into, let's just say you go into a new house and you're looking around and the agent is showing you around And you start opening some drawers because you want to see what kind of space you have. And you end up finding an unclaimed winning lotto ticket in the kitchen drawer worth, wait for it, $100. I'm kidding, not $100. Like $300 million. You remember when the lotto happened? Nobody claimed the ticket. You were like, man, what would I do with that kind of cash? I can't believe someone has $300 million coming. Nobody took it. Well, you just found the ticket. So without hesitating, this is what you did. You make the highest Offer imaginable 
to the owner, right? Because you know where that ticket is. You see that ticket. Not only that, but you happily sell everything you own because you need a down payment. What just happened was you found a house that just was risen to a house of immeasurable value because you found something in it that made it worth more than it actually was. So as we go back to the parable, this is what we see. We see a man who is in a field, finds treasure, gives everything up so that he can buy the field and claim the treasure. Now here's a couple interesting things about this as we read this really short parable. It's interesting how all the other man's possessions become instantly less valuable to him. Isn't that interesting? It says in his joy he sells all that he had. Well, what, what did he have? Well, we're not really, we're not really told what he had, but, but we, can, we can just use a little imagination here. I don't know, maybe he had a house that he really loved. Maybe he had a couple cars. Maybe he had a couple motorcycles. Maybe it was his wife's wedding ring, right? Maybe it was the 2016 LeBron jersey, you know, that he'd gotten, you know? I mean, maybe, maybe it was something of that kind of inestimable worth. Like he had things that were valuable to him. Here's what's interesting for us as we read this. There's no hesitation, was there? There's no regret in the heart of the treasure finder. It just says with joy he immediately sells all that he has to attain uh, the treasure. Why? Why does he do that? Well, because he discovered something that in actuality put an accurate value on all his other possessions, Right? So we, we look at something like this, a man who gives up everything to get something better, and we think, oh, the focus is on what's better. Well, it is. But you know what it also does in reverse? It also puts a value on the things that originally, before he'd found that treasure, he thought were better. It immediately gave him an accurate value on his less desirable treasures. Now, the question for us is, would that be hard for us? Would that be hard for you? Most of you would say, well, not if I found a treasure. Not if I found a treasure, Martin. And yet what Jesus is saying, not really very subtly in this parable, is he's saying, oh, I am the treasure. Just in case you were wondering and you, in case you're thinking this, this parable is too vague, I am the treasure. And the reason why it's hard for us is because we're broken. We're broken and our brokenness assigns so much value to lesser treasures that Jesus becomes by default less desirable as the better treasure. What's interesting is we think by giving up lesser treasures like this man who bought the field, we think giving up lesser treasures will cost us something. There's a fear in that for us. We think it will cost us something when in actuality, it's the other way around, right? Colossians 2.3, Paul reminds us, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs reminds us by saying, wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. What do we mean when we talk about wisdom? Well, we're told in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Christ is the wisdom of God. So to desire Christ is actually gaining the most wisdom, the better treasure, the knowledge that is good for our lives and the direction and affection of our hearts. Does that make sense? Well, let's go on. Let's read the next parable here in verse 45. It's very similar. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant 
in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is a similar parable about a merchant or jeweler, okay, searching for fine pearls, and he finds this one pearl that surpasses all of the other jewels he's collected. So immediately he sells all his other jewels to buy the pearl of greatest value. Now this, again, a slight twist on what we just read about the, about the treasure hunter, because this was a man who actually owned something very similar to that which he was going to pur- purchase, right? He was a guy that already had you know, a big handful of pearls. He had many fine pearls, but he had never found that one pearl to surpass all the other pearls that he had. So when he finds it, he sees it, he sells all the other pearls, all of those other great possessions that he had so that he could have the one thing that just stood out, the one thing he had been looking for his whole life. He understood what value was. He understood what the value of a pearl was. He understood what it was like to have an accumulated value with all the pearls he had had. But he found this one pearl that surpassed everything and he had to get rid of everything to get it because, again, what did it do? Well, it finally revealed the value of his other pearls, right? So here's what I want to say about that. God has blessed many of you with good and valuable and noble things. But if you're not careful, you can be fooled into believing that these are all irreplaceable things in your life, right? Jesus is saying, following me is of infinitely greater worth than those things God has given us. That, again, we're not saying they don't have worth. We're not saying they don't have great value. In fact, we're saying that they do. We're saying that they do have great value. We're looking at the guy with the pearls. He had things of great value, but they weren't the greatest value, right? Now, God blessed me with this smart, beautiful woman. I mean, no, we're not on the outs right now. I'm not just saying that because I need to come back from something, right? But he blessed me with this smart, beautiful woman that somehow, some way, decided to devote her life to me. It's embarrassing for her, right? But there's, there's a limit There's a limit, right? God didn't create our marriage to rule over us. He created it for him to rule over, right? As something that reflects his glory because that's the reason God created everything. So as amazing as Melissa is, as beautiful as Melissa is, there is something more beautiful. There is something more worthy. There is something of more value, right? I'm not going to be on the couch tonight for saying that. There's something that is worth more than my wife. Oh, there's something that's worth more than my marriage, right? But but it's also something that gives more value to my wife. It gives better value to my marriage because, again, those things are supposed to be taken up with the thing that actually has more value and not exist apart from it where it contains less value. Does that make sense to us when I say that? So in other words, when I met Melissa at the coffee shop in Newport Beach, California one night, and she rejected my offer for a cup of coffee, uh, God ultimately turned the tables on her, okay? She turned the, he turned the tables on that rejection to bring us together. And he brought us together, actually, not for us, but he brought us together for the good life under him. He brought us together for the good life under his 
rule. But if I place an ultimate value on it that can't sustain me ultimately, I turn it into something that will turn against me. Then it becomes an idol in my life. It becomes something that God never intended it to be. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 reminds us, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So be warned. Find your treasure. Find the thing that is giving you all of that satisfaction that you've placed all that value on. And remember that that is where your heart lies. That is where your heart is given. That is where your heart is sunk into. That is what is making a dent in your heart. So, what are these parables calling us to understand then and to do? This is a short, short parable. Don't worry, they're going to get a lot longer. We just started with a short one to have mercy on you this first week. But what are these parables calling us to understand and to do? I have two things that I'm going to close with. Number one, they're calling us, these two parables in particular, are calling us to discover Jesus as our treasure. To discover Jesus as our treasure. You say to me, I don't feel like Jesus is the greatest treasure. Pastor, I know. I know that's the right answer. And I know if I sat down with you, I might even let that slip out of my lips, right? I know that's the right answer, but I don't, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I'm looking around and I'm seeing all the things I've accumulated and I'm seeing the kind of satisfaction they get. Or it's the flip. I'm looking around and I'm seeing all the things I don't have. Like I just, I don't have enough to even like get me moving in the morning. You're talking about Jesus as my treasure and I'm struggling through making ends meet right now. I'm struggling just having enough to survive. How is Jesus as my greatest treasure supposed to give me everything that I need. Well, let's do this. Let's go back and imagine these parables having a different outcome. Let's pick up in verse 44. What if, it was, what if it was something to this nature? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and left it just laying there. Then, uh, in his boredom, uh, he goes, he grabs all of his greatest treasures, goes out to the lake that weekend, and just has a great time and leaves that treasure of immeasurable worth just sitting open in the field for somebody else to come and grab. Now, if that was the parable, you'd be like me. You'd be like, what? Like, I, I mean, I'm afraid to say what I think about this guy right now. Let's go to the next one. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, he shrugged his shoulders went to the bar, had a great lunch, grabbed all of his pearls, went home, locked them up in a safe, and uh, got ready for the game tonight. You just go, wait, what? Like, like you found the pearl. Why didn't you go and seize that pearl? That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me that there's a treasure there, but you just stayed content with the stuff that you have that's worth so much less? It would be preposterous. It would be absurd if these were flipped because your gut reaction to that is, is foolishness. It's foolishness. Why would these men not have the desire to attain something with this much worth? Why would they not have the desire? That's what you'd ask yourself. So how many of you are tired hearing people talk about the whole 30? Come on. 
There's a few of you. How many of you are tired of hearing me talk about Whole30? Oh, everybody's afraid to raise their hand on that one. <laughs> the big idea behind Whole30 is this. It's, uh, it's the Whole30 is this diet, you know, lifestyle food thing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the big idea behind it is that it actually is supposed to remove your cravings for food that is not so great for you. I mean, that's the, it's the simple version of it. Uh, for me, after having been on the Whole30, for me, it was sugar, right? I'm a sugar addict. I love cake. I love candy. I love ice cream. And some of you are saying, yeah, don't we all, Ronnie? Not like me. Not like me. You just don't. So my cravings after being on Whole30, uh, my cravings for sugar, they, they actually diminished. So it's not that I don't like a piece of cake, and I just had one the other night, but uh, my cravings, my ongoing desire, the, 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 uh, sort of, sort of the, the volume and the amount of my desire ha has been diminished, but my craving for other food, for better food, for good food, for food that actually benefits me, that's increased, right? So one craving has been diminished, another better craving has diminished. Now, I need you guys to listen to me. God doesn't want you to not have treasure and pearls. Man, I'm not being some TV preacher right now. Here's where I'm going with this. He wants Jesus to be your treasure and your pearl so that your desire increases for the thing that can actually satisfy it, right? So God is not asking for you to have less desire. He's asking for you to have more desire for the right thing because only one thing can satisfy desire, C.S. Lewis said that the problem is not that we have desires. He said the problem is our desires are too weak and they're too half-hearted. This is a quote from him. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He said we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He said, we are far too easily pleased. Yeah, I know the slum and the mud pies, it's, old, it's, you know, it's 70 years ago English, right? But you guys get the, the point here. Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to hammer this, okay? Jesus isn't saying you need to curb your desires. He's saying, I'm the one where your desire will finally meet satisfaction. He says, your love for things of lesser value, it's weak. It's a weak desire. It's a weak love. Jesus doesn't want you to destroy your idols because they give you too much pleasure. Right? He doesn't want you to give up all you have because he's afraid they might be better than him. He's not threatened by those things. He's trying to redirect your heart to the things that you're trying to get from those things. And maybe Jesus isn't our treasure because all these lesser treasures are stealing percentages. Right? They're stealing the percentages of which we could be giving ourselves to the greater want and the greater desire of Jesus. And here's what the real situation is is that many of you are simply unacquainted with Jesus. You ever thought about that? Maybe you have a weak desire and a, and, a, and a weak want of Jesus because you're not so acquainted with him. You might be acquainted with Sunday mornings. You might, might be acquainted with podcasts. You might be acquainted with sermons. You might be acquainted with community groups. You might be acquainted with books and Bible studies and all of that. Those are means on our way to wanting and desiring Jesus more, but that's not the same. 
Maybe you've just not been so acquainted with Jesus. You might be familiar with the work of Jesus on the cross, right? You affirm that, but you're not really familiar with the person of Jesus that completed that work. With Jesus who created the heaven and the earth. With Jesus who healed blind men who had that kind of compassion. With Jesus who was so patient with Peter after Peter just threw him under the bus. With Jesus who cooked the disciples breakfast after his death because he cared about them having full bellies that morning. With Jesus who wept after one of his best friends, a guy named Lazarus, died. He was sad. With Jesus who conquered death and appeared before 500 people to say, hey, I'm back. Death had got nothing on me. I conquered it. With Jesus who showed Thomas, one of his disciples, the scars in his hands and feet. Because Thomas was like, this is absurd, he's still dead. And Jesus just came to him and said, no, actually, I'm here, Tom. I just want you to see that. It's cool. So we want to discover Jesus, that Jesus, as our treasure. And then secondly, sell everything. Oh, gosh, I hate, I hate that. You know what I'm saying? I remember hearing these messages growing up and the guy would get to the sell everything thing and I'd be like, all right, babe, we got to go. There's, you know, I think all the donuts are going to get taken up if we don't get out of here in time. Sell everything. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about for a few minutes what that means, right? But that's what it says. That's what it says. I'm not getting all David Platt on you right now either, right? For some of you who know what I'm talking about. But it says sell everything. Now, listen, when I was five years old, my dad um, started giving me $2 a week allowance. I know this was like back in 1911. So <laughs> inflation hadn't happened. Kids now were getting like 50 bucks a week. I get that. Back then, we were getting two bucks a week. That was the uh, minimum wage. Um, the first thing I did, this is crazy, I remember this, but the first thing I did when I first got my allowance was I, I got rid of it, right? And I bought these things that I'd been craving and desiring. I bought Mexican jumping beans. <laughs> I just loved Mexican jumping beans and I wanted some. Um, I gave everything I had. They were two bucks. I gave the guy my two bucks, and he gave me my Mexican jumping beans. Uh, the next week, uh, the beans were gone. <laughs> I don't know where the beans were, but I wanted something else. So I took the $2, and I bought something else. We laugh at that, and yet some of you are investing everything you have for nothing you can keep. Remember the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10? You have Martha and Mary, sisters. Jesus comes over to the house. Martha's preparing a big meal. Great. She's rushing around. She's irritable. She's angry. Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. She's just listening to his words. And at some point, Martha comes in and says, hey, a little help would be nice, Mary. And Jesus said, hey, Martha, Mary is where she's supposed to be. She's chosen the good portion. She, Jesus wasn't saying that a meal didn't need to be cooked. She was just saying, hey, the franticness of your heart, the thing that you are most wanting and desiring to do is getting in the way of the thing that is laying before you and it's better. Jesus was saying, Martha, just give up everything for that. Cook a meal, but give up. Give up what's bending your heart towards those things. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, he said, hey, just seek me first. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek the good life with Jesus. Seek righteousness. Seek those things first. All those other things, I'm going to add them to you. I'm going to give you what you need is what Jesus said. 
So life under the rule of Jesus in the kingdom of God, it means giving up everything to gain everything and realize what you gave up was nothing in comparison. It's a change of heart. David writes in Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. There's something more than what those other things can supply for us, but not even at the absence of those things because we need, we need grain and wine to live. We need those things. So we look down at this and we see these charges from Jesus through his parables and we just think, well, is he lying? I know that sounds ridiculous. It's rhetorical, right? But, but it, it sounds ridiculous because all of you are going to go, no, he's not lying, Martin. I got it. But, but, but is he lying? Is he offering us something subjective? Is he, is he making a subjective statement here saying, you know, it might be better for some of you. You know, you guys got to do your own thing. You got to live your own life. You got to do what's right for you. But in case you want to choose me as the greatest treasure, that'll be the greatest treasure for some of you. No, he unequivocally says, I am the treasure. I am the treasure. Many of us, we want heaven when we die. So we come into church and we use Jesus for heaven. We use him for something that we're afraid of because in our lives, when we think of the afterlife and we think of eternity, we get it. We need Christ so that we can spend an eternity with him. We say, in a sense, we say, you'll be good someday, Jesus. But for now, I have other things worth pursuing more. How can that be? How can Jesus be valuable for life after death, but not life during life? Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief, the enemy, the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. But then he said this. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He wasn't just talking about life after grave, after the grave. He was talking about life during life. So who or what is stealing the abundant life that Jesus died to give you? Do you need to sell everything? You actually do. You actually do in many ways. Philippians 3, Paul tells us, Indeed, I count everything as loss, says Paul, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And not only suffered the loss of all things, this is what he says after that, which is the amazing statement. I count them as rubbish. They're just trash. In order that I may gain Christ. Paul didn't want anything stealing the percentage of joy that he knew was available to him when Christ was ruler over his life and his greatest treasure and greatest pearl. Now, we get nervous with talk like this. Like, we get nervous with talk like this. But this, again, this is a bent of heart. Don't, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. This is a bent of heart. For some of you, you need to physically get rid of things that rule over you. You do need to do that. There are things in your life that you need to get rid of because they have a grip on you, and they might be physical things. They're fighting and they're competing with Jesus for lordship over your life. So yes, but some of you need to repent of the good things in your life that have risen to ultimate treasure status. Friendships, spouse, a child, maybe a dream, maybe something you've dreamed of and fantasized about, something you want to do in the future, all of your hope, all of your heart goes into that. Maybe it's the outcome of something. I just want this to turn out right. 
I just want to know that this is going to be okay. And all of your heart goes towards something like that. None of those things are necessarily bad things. But if they've stolen your heart's greatest affection, then you need to take a look. In Mark 10, Peter says, Lord, we have given up everything for you. That's what Peter said to Jesus. Jesus says, it's okay, Peter, because you will receive a hundredfold. So whatever you don't receive in this life, I'm going to surround you with a group of people, with a church that are going to supply your needs. You're going to have what you need. And in the life to come, eternal life. Jim Elliott, uh, a missionary that was murdered back in 1956, he made this amazing statement, made two amazing statements I'm going to quote as we finish here. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And then he made this second statement where he said, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. God's choice for what was best in all of our lives was his son Jesus. People search their whole lives for treasures and pearls. It's the great search. Jesus says, look no further than me. Jesus says, I can be discovered. Jesus says, I can be had. We think about people who win the lotto. We think about people who get those NFL contracts, right? And they get those. I used to know an NFL guy, and he, he was the hot shot out of college. He got this contract, got a $6 million signing bonus. He was, I think, I think he started with the Bears. Three years later, he was done. Just couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't, couldn't rise up to that line. There's a difference between, between college and pro ball, right? You're like, Ronnie, are, are, is this you up there talking right now? I know more than you think about those things. <laughs> but in three years, it was done. It was all done. He never able to play football again. He found success. Many people find success. But here's my question. Will success be faithful to them? Will success be faithful to you? Well, even getting and gaining and acquiring those things that you want so dearly and deeply, will those things be faithful to you? Will money be faithful to you? Because money and success doesn't say, I will never leave or forsake you. Jesus does. Money and success doesn't say, come to me, you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus says that. Money and success doesn't say, Come to me and I will give you life and I will give it to you more abundantly. Jesus says that. Money and success and getting your dreams doesn't say deny yourself. Doesn't say take up your cross. But it does say follow me. Success doesn't say repent and your sins will be forgiven. Because it doesn't have anything to offer you in that category. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And what we know is that few people at the end of their life, including you, will ever tell anybody that they wish they would have had more success. They wish they would have made more money. They wish they would have built bigger houses. Big houses are fine. Or made it further up the corporate ladder. Go up the corporate ladder. That's good. God gives you those opportunities. Pursue them. But you cannot pursue any of these things as your greatest end, as your greatest treasure. What people tell you at the end is that they pursued too many things of too little value. But how much more 
will somebody be able to tell you of the worth and value that they pursued when their hearts were open to the truth of Jesus and they just went after him and they discovered him as the treasure of their lives. John 12, whoever loves his life, he loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, hates those things that would keep you away from Jesus being your greatest treasure and your pearl, will keep it, will keep their life, it says, for eternal life. That's why Jesus is the better ruler. That's why Jesus is the better treasure to give up all other treasures for. The answer, the answer, I don't care where you exist right now, socioeconomically, the answer is Jesus. The answer will always be Jesus. And you will experience Jesus in the life of this church with people who will walk alongside of you and give you visible examples of why he is the better treasure and the greater pearl. Amen? Let's pray together. God, this is a hard, hard sermon for us to hear, but it's such a great thing, Lord, to penetrate our hearts. So we pray that you would do that. We pray, Lord, that our desire for you, which is the first step towards you becoming our treasure, Lord, that you would sweeten it, Lord, that you would heighten it, Lord, that you would increase it, Lord, that our wants and our desires would be met in you. We thank you for the good gifts that you've given us. We thank you today, right now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but right now, Lord, we have air conditioning. And right now we have clothes. And right now we have food to eat here in just a few minutes. Right now we have been given things. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we know that you are the Lord over tomorrow. So Lord, rule over our lives as a church who wants to become less attached to the lesser treasures of their life. We pray in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen, amen.